Chapter 4 of Daniel is a unique portion of Scripture because it's a letter that Nebuchadnezzar himself sent to the entire empire after he recovered from his, his insanity. Now, it's unique because this is, you can turn me down just a little bit, please. This is his own words. Now, he probably dictated the letter to a scribe or possibly even Daniel himself. But what's interesting here is that these words are found in Holy Scripture. So that we see the entirety of the letter is actually inspired by God. The letter was to be sent to all the nations and peoples of every language who live on all the earth. And after becoming insane, Nebuchadnezzar was probably taken to a place of seclusion. The text reads, driven away from people. And he probably had not been, been seen in public for a long time. And now he's back and he wanted the people to know what happened to him, why he was gone for such a long time. The period of time of Nebuchadnezzar's absence is described in the text by the phrase seven times. Now this phrase either is describing seven years or merely a long period of time. It is interesting to, to note that there is a notable absence in any records of acts and decrees made by King Nebuchadnezzar during a seven year period between 582 and 575 BC. Now I personally believe that this phrase seven times describes a perfect period of time ordained by God to humble Nebuchadnezzar and to bring him to his spiritual senses. The fact is God has for each one of us a perfect period of time to bring us into himself. A perfect period of time where we will humble ourselves and acknowledge him as Lord. Now, of course, we all know that the number seven is God's favorite number, but anyway, it's just my own personal opinion. Now, although his condition is drastic, there is nothing, and there's nothing anyone can do for him to reverse this condition. Nebuchadnezzar was protected from harm during his absence. Remember that Daniel and his three friends had faithfully served as top officials in Babylon for decades, and they had the authority necessary to keep the kingdom running while Nebuchadnezzar was incapacitated. Also remember that Daniel knew the outcome of the dream and he undoubtedly informed the other government officials that Nebuchadnezzar was going to return, that his condition was not permanent and they better be ready when the king comes back. Now even though God was humbling Nebuchadnezzar, God would control all these government officials, he would control any opposing kingdom from attacking Nebuchadnezzar during his time of weakness. As I've said several times during this series, God is in control no matter how messed up things get. Amen? So, the story begins. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and of the people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. This is my, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Now, with this greeting in verses 1 and 2, the, the, the readers, the citizens of Babylon must have wondered what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar to give us this type of greeting. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a harsh anger, a very controlling nature, and now in this opening it's nothing but peace and prosperity to everybody. You get peace, you get prosperity. That was a joke. All right, so they had to have been wondering what's up. And also, what's going on with all this God talk? See, Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist, which means he believed in many gods. But now he's talking about this most high God. He's talking, he sounds more like a monotheist, that is a belief in one God. This reminds me of a story that happened with me. I returned to Indiana for my 10th year class reunion. And we gathered one night into this, um, this area for have a banquet together. And before everything began, the master of ceremonies says, I'd like to introduce the, uh, um, Reverend Brian Kelso to come and, and give us an opening prayer. And the place goes, <laughs> that's so funny, Reverend Brian Kelso offering a prayer. That, see, I was a pretty rebellious guy especially in the later years of high school, you have to remember it was the 70s, and all of you that lived through it knows how it goes. And I, had, and I hadn't really kept close touch with my, my high school um, graduates, and um, it was way, way, way before social media. And so when, when he says this and these people laugh, you see, they were unaware of my story. You know, they were unaware that after high school, the Lord had captured my heart. I was able to go four years to Bible college and get my undergraduate degree. We had just um, planted our, our, and pastoring our, our first church. The point is, is that they didn't know my story. And the people of the Empire of Babylon didn't know Nebuchadnezzar's story. He had been out of sight for many years. And he wanted the citizens of his empire to know exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar begins by telling them that several years ago that he was at home in his palace. He was content and he was prosperous. He had built an empire, a culture, an educated international government. He had built Babylon, the city of Babylon. And the city of Babylon is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's known for its magnificent buildings, its flowing fountains and streams, and those beautiful hanging gardens. And this word prosperous that's used in our text in verse 4 is actually translated to be green. What it's talking about is that you're flourishing, you're in a sense of flourishing growth, uh, like plants that are growing and trees that are growing. The point is that Nebuchadnezzar was in a good place. No more countries to conquer, no more governments to build or organize, no more buildings to build. He was living in security, he was experiencing growth and prosperity, and surrounding him were all these monuments to his wealth, his power, and his intellect. 
But one night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and it terrified him. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, unlike the reoccurring dream of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar only had this dream once. But it was the images and visions that terrified him. So once again he calls in his wisdom professionals and once again they can't give him an interpretation. So once again he calls Daniel in for the rescue and once again here comes Daniel to be able to tell the king what's going on. Now notice in the letter Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel by his Babylonian name because the citizens of Babylonian probably wouldn't know Daniel by Daniel. They would know him by his Babylonian name, so he wants them to make sure that they know who he's talking about. So Daniel finally arrives, and Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the details of his terrifying dream. He says, there are, there, These are the visions I saw laying, while laying in, my, in bed. I looked, and behold, before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. It was abundant fruit, and on it was food for food for all. Under the, it were animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while I was laying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off the leaves and scatter its fruit. And of course, the animals flee and the birds scatter only the stump of the tree remains being bound, the, trump, uh, the stump and the, and the roots remain bound with this iron and bronze. And then the messenger says, let him, notice it changes now to a personal pronoun, let him be drenched with the dew from heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass before him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, them, or sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel knows the interpretation of the dream. And he begs Daniel to do that. And at first, Daniel resists, but the king insists. Now, I just want to pause the story for a moment and let us consider Daniel's concern and his calling. Daniel was terrified with what this dream meant. He saw it in living color. And notice the first thing he says to the king was, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Wow. 
You talk about seeking the welfare of the city. Remember, this is the king who destroyed Daniel's homeland, devastated his city, deported his people, and defiled his temple. And you would have thought that Daniel says, you know what, bro? You get exactly what you deserve. I've been sitting around in this place for decades. And now you're going to get yours. But that's not what Daniel does. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. This is loving your enemies in real time. This is praying for those who persecute you in real life. And this is the type of Christ-centered attitude that we must have as we live in exile in our Babylon. Daniel then tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. Daniel has a prophetic courage to tell Nebuchadnezzar the truth about what was going to happen to him. And I know giving, reading quotes is kind of boring to people, but I've got to read this one. This is from a, an Old, Te- Old Testament commentator and, and scholar. His work is fabulous. Just listen to this. It was written in the 1800s, as a matter of fact. Quote, As Daniel at once understood the interpretation of the dream, he was for a moment so astonished that he could not speak for terror at the thoughts which moved his soul. The amazement seized him because he wished well to the king, and yet he must now announce to him the weighty judgment from God. Basically, Daniel had to speak the truth in love. And so we must, as we live in exile, we have to tell the truth of God's word in love. Again, I want you to see Daniel's concern and his calling. Daniel, for Daniel, his concern and his calling were, were two sides of the same coin. On one hand, Daniel had a genuine concern for Nebuchadnezzar's well-being. But on the other hand, he was called to be the Lord's prophet to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel could not allow his concern to hinder his calling. And he could not allow his calling... To hinder his concern. Brothers and sisters, our genuine concern for the welfare of others cannot overshadow our responsibility to tell people the truth of God's word. And I'm telling you, this is a problem we have as we live in exile here. We want people to like us. We don't want to have confrontation. We don't want to have arguments. We want to live together in peace and prosperity. And we, many times we, we're afraid. And if we do share with somebody the word of God, that these people are going to be offended and, and, we're going to, and they're not going to like us anymore. So what do we do? We don't share the word of God. Our concern has overwhelmed our calling. And we just can't allow it to happen. As well as our responsibility to be the Lord's mouthpiece cannot overshadow our genuine concern for people's welfare. We can't beat people with the Bible. We can't force them into heaven. We have to 
Preach the word, teach the word, share the word in love. We must seek the Lord to be wise as serpents, but also harmless as doves as we live in exile in this strange land. We must seek the Lord to give us a genuine concern for others while we speak the truth of God's word in love to them. Now back to the story. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High who issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox, and you will be drenched from the dew, with the dew from heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone He wishes the command to leave the stump and its tree with its roots. Well, that means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now Nebuchadnezzar had ruled the world for decades. And through the ministry of Daniel and his three friends, God had revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar on several occasions. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar confesses that, the, that Daniel's God is the God of gods, but he insists that there's still other gods. And remember in chapter 3, he commends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for their faith in their God. But he only issues a decree that allows them to worship their God in the freedom of religion. But Nebuchadnezzar never humbles himself to worship the Most High alone. And now God's getting really serious with Nebuchadnezzar. Like God wants to get really serious with you and with me. Nebuchadnezzar had heard the holy messenger say that the purpose behind the dream was that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Daniel explains that what will happen to Nebuchadnezzar is that he will go insane until he acknowledges the Most High is sovereign. And that the Most High rules, and not Nebuchadnezzar. Again, I just want to pause the story here for us to consider what, what this really means. What it really means to us. What it really means about what the Bible says about who is a true believer. Who is a, who is a Christian? So here's the question. Can a person be a Christian? Can a person be a believer in Christ without making a clear profession of faith in Christ as Lord? Can that happen? Is a person who has been exposed to the Word of God, who has witnessed the work of God, but has never made a clear profession of faith, is that person a believer? Is that person a Christian? And I ask this question because Nebuchadnezzar had been exposed to the Word of God in the previous chapters. The previous chapters has shown us that he witnessed the work of God. But it's clear that God wants more from Nebuchadnezzar than his belief that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is just one God amongst many gods. The Lord wants more from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. He wants him to confess that the Most High is more than just a revealer of mysteries, of more than just a deliverer of, of, of the faithful. He is the Most High Sovereign Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, we live in our Babylon and everybody wants you to believe their God. Believe in their God. And if you speak against their God, oh, ho, ho. But I have to tell you, we must be insistent in our declaration of the gospel that Jesus, God sent his son to do what we could not do. And God, by his love, has now dispensed, poured out the obedience of Christ upon us. But there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said, everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, words without a changed heart are only words. We can can honor the Lord with our lips, but our hearts can be far away from him. A mere profession of faith without a corresponding change of the heart, well, it doesn't have power to save. I don't care how many times you walk down the aisle. But it's clear from Scripture that God places an importance on the act of making a clear profession of faith in Jesus Christ alone. I shall not be ashamed of the gospel because it is a power for salvation. Amen? We must be clear as we share the truth in love. It seems to me that God is drawing Nebuchadnezzar to a point of making a clear profession of faith in God alone. And after explaining the dream and stating its purpose, Daniel then concludes by calling Nebuchadnezzar to repent. It's in verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. May it be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, let's just get this clear. Nebuchadnezzar is not promising the king forgiveness on the grounds of good works. Daniel knows that God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel knows this is not the first time that God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And you need to know as you share the gospel with love to people, God is speaking to them. God draws people to himself. And we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work. But we must call people to repent, to renounce their sins, to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. But like a good prophet, we see that Daniel exhorts the king to break away from his sins, to repent from his pride and his arrogance and acknowledge the Most High God is the ruler of heaven and earth. And and Daniel challenges Nebuchadnezzar in this verse 27, not only to repent, but he challenges him, Nebuchadnezzar, show the world the work that God has done in your heart by bearing fruits of righteousness. And showing mercy to the oppressed. You have a grand stage to show the world the work of God in you. And then Daniel says, if you do this, your majesty, your prosperity will continue. Sounds like a pretty good deal. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hmm, let, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And he does. For a whole year. 
for 12 months. And then one day, 12 months later, as he is gazing out upon his beautiful city of Babylon on the porch of his royal palace, reflecting upon all his power and the glory of his majesty, a voice came from heaven saying, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live like a wild animal. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass before you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. And immediately what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. The exiler was exiled. He becomes a scary, psychotic mess. He doesn't bathe. He takes no shelter for himself. He roots around in the dirt, eating grass. His hair is matted. His nails grow exceedingly long. This guy looks creepy. No no wonder they took him into an excluded place. And he stays in this condition for seven times. But at the end of that period, Nebuchadnezzar writes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than I was before. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything He does is right, and all of His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. (laughs) What a story. I just want to take just a few moments for us to look at a couple symbolisms behind the story. I need to couch this with the understanding that both secular history and scripture records that Nebuchadnezzar was a real person. This is not some made-up story. This really happened. And the Bible tells us that these things happened to them as an example to us. They were written down for our instruction. So I want to highlight a couple ways that, that this story can benefit us from its symbolism. First of all, I want us to consider the symbolism of Babylon. The Bible uses Babylon as a symbol of this fallen world which is in rebellion against God. We're introduced to Babylon in the pages of Genesis with Babel where mankind sought to make a name for themselves in defiance against God's word. And then we see now in Nebuchadnezzar's day Babylon becomes the empire that destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple and takes people into exile. What's interesting is in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter figuratively uses Babylon as this current world that wages war against our souls as Christians live and sit in exiles and strangers in this world. And then the book of Revelation, we see Babylon is the great harlot that promotes immorality and sensuality in this world. 
Basically what we see is Babylon is woven throughout the pages of Scripture as the kingdom that is in rebellion against God. And I want you to see that Babylon was where Nebuchadnezzar was drawing all of his sense of a significance and all of his sense of identity. He quotes himself in his letter, is this is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory and majesty? You don't think this guy is looking at Babylon as his sense of significance and identity? He says it. And this is the lure of Babylon for us. The kingdoms of this world are symbolized in Babylon that seduces, entices, and deceive us to think that our significance and our identity and our achievements are based upon our ability to manipulate and to manage our lives on our terms. It's a lure. The national anthem of Babylon is, I did it my way. But the call of God on Nebuchadnezzar is the same for us today. Come out of Babylon before it's too late. Don't allow your significance, your identity to be to, and your life to be wrapped up in your accomplishments. Come to your spiritual senses and praise the Most High for what He has allowed you to accomplish and praise Him for the gifts that He's given to you. Honor and glorify Him now in word and deed. Come out of Babylon. The second symbol I want us to consider is Nebuchadnezzar himself. As I mentioned, history proves that Nebuchadnezzar was a historical figure. And in many ways, he symbolizes each one of us. And our resistance to humble ourselves before God. Now, of course, pride is one of the seven deadly sins. And many other sins can be linked back to pride as its source. But the biggest and most dangerous form of pride is seen in a person's resistance to humble themselves before God. If you don't humble yourself to God, you are prideful. The Bible tells us that God is opposed to the proud. Why? Because pride steals the glory from God. You're a thief if you don't humble yourself. When we're prideful about our talents and abilities, our looks and our possessions, basically what we're doing, we're stealing glory from the one who has given us every good and perfect gift. The only thing we should ever brag about is the Lord himself. Let him who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, God knows that we struggle by letting go and letting God, that we often fool ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar was fooled to think that he's bigger, he's better, he can work it out, he can manipulate things to get all the glory, honor, and power. I can make this happen. I can get out of this mess. It's a trick. Our prayer has to be, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. It's a trick. So what does God do? He gives us grace to overcome our pride. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself 
under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If there is ever a New Testament verse that correlates directly with with Daniel chapter 4, that's it. Then Nebuchadnezzar's sanity returned. Well, it returned once he raised his eyes to heaven and acknowledged God's sovereign rule. I'm going to say this because I believe there's, there's somebody or several people here today that need to hear it. I'm going to say it twice. I know we're already over time. we got the Lord's Supper to do, but you ain't got no place to go. The Super Bowl don't start till later. <laughs> the preacher's going to have his day. Here it is. Our sanity is directly linked to our acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Not recognizing God's sovereignty will drive you insane. If you think you can control it, if you think you can make it happen, if you think that it's you... You're going to go spiritually insane. There's going to be something in your life that's going to happen one day, and you're not going to be able to answer the why question. Why did that happen? Why did my child die? Why did this accident happen? Why did I lose my money? Why, 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 why? And it's going to shake you to the core. And I'm telling you, unless you acknowledge God's sovereignty and saying, God, I don't know, but you know. And I will trust in you as the sovereign king of heaven. You will go insane. Now there's been a long time debate as whether Nebuchadnezzar was actually saved in a spiritual sense through this experience. But for me it's hard to think that an unbeliever could write the things that Nebuchadnezzar wrote in this chapter. I mean just look at the opening lines. It's my pleasure to tell you about all the miraculous signs and wonders of the Most High God. Just look at the closing lines. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. What? I don't hear unbelievers talking like that. I believe that God humbled Nebuchadnezzar to the point that he recognized God not just as a revealer of mysteries, not just as a miraculous deliverer, but he himself is the most high. I believe that God worked deep into Nebuchadnezzar's heart, so he acknowledged the most high God as the only God, the king of heaven and earth. I think that Nebuchadnezzar was no longer content to believe that God was just ruled the heavens, but he came to believe that God ruled heaven and earth and that God's will was to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar came to a place where he acknowledged that the same God who sovereignly controls heaven and earth is the same God that controls and speaks to our hearts. That he can make the prideful humble. That the God that controls the universe is the one who controls my heart. It's the same God. And remember, it wasn't until he looked up to heaven and acknowledged that God that his sanity was returned. And that's the challenge for each one of us today. Look up into heaven and acknowledge God is the most high the giver of grace through the work of his son, our Lord Jesus. And I will praise you, Lord, forever and ever. Amen. Do it today. Do it today.
I think if Nebuchadnezzar was here today, he would tell you, eventually, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you might as well do it today. You're going to do it one day. Why not today? And this morning we have a grand opportunity to make a common confession that God has fully demonstrated His grace by giving us the the merits of His Son, our Lord Jesus, by receiving the Supper. Set behind me is the table of our Lord. It's not the table of this church or a table of our denomination. This is the Lord's table. Therefore, all those who come to this table are to come in faith in Jesus Christ, even if God just spoke to you five seconds ago, even even though you might have just come to the Lord in this service, this meal is for you. For on this table are two simple elements that represents the symbols of God's grace unto us, that He gave us His Son, whose body was broken, represented in the bread, that He gave us His Son, whose blood was shed, which is represented through the cup. And the Bible tells us to eat and drink these symbols, not in some mysterious or sort of magic sense, but to do it as a confession of faith that I believe that God's love is fully demonstrated in the work of Jesus Christ. Because when we do that, the Bible tells us that we will be spiritually nourished. If you would, we will continue in our prosperity. But the Bible also tells us to examine ourselves before we receive the supper. And so as the worship team comes up and I prepare the table for us, I would encourage each one of you today to search your heart. Do you acknowledge the Most High God of heaven alone, the giver of grace through the work of His Son, our Lord Jesus? Are you really seeking Him to nourish you and to fortify your faith as you live in lowly exile here? Do you believe that one day we're going to eat a great banquet in heaven with the Lamb of God? Let's search our hearts today and give Him glory. Let's pray. O Most High God, the giver of every good and perfect thing, we humble ourselves before you even now and claim that you are sovereign, the ruler of heaven and earth, the ruler of our hearts. You have caused the prideful to be humble, and we humble ourselves before you even now and acknowledge your grace that is given to us through the work of your Son. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we make this common confession together that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.